Boom Mike Productions is in partnership with RPS to present the work of Jack Latham and his Sugar Paper Theories project. This podcast presents the testimonies of Gisley Gudjonsson, Erla Badottier, Dylan Howitt, as well as the curator Mark Rawlings and Jack Latham himself, as they recall the events of the infamous Goodmunder case. The Goodmunder case, also known as the Reykjavik Confessions, is a case concerning the disappearances of Goodmunder and Gefinur Ernesson in 1974 in Iceland. Six people were convicted of their alleged murders on the basis of confessions acquired by false memories. In later years, most Icelanders believe the six were wrongfully convicted. Jack Latham's Sugar Paper Theories project attempts to document and offer different perspectives on chilling events of the Goodmunder case. Throughout the book, you will find detailed photographs and newspaper articles that will leave you with a different insight and understanding into what really happened. So we are here with Mark Rawlinson, who is an Associate Professor of Art History at the University of Nottingham. Um, he's written widely on American art, photography and visual culture, and has created several exhibitions, including And Now It's Dark, American Night Photography in 2015, and Homage to the Bauhaus, the Kirkland Collection in 2019. Hello, Mark. Hello. Hello. So what drew you to creating, uh, curating, sorry, and how did you start? It's a very long story. Okay, um, we got time. <laughs> um, I get, I, for a while, I was kind of a late academic, so I didn't actually start um, doing the job, as it were, as a researcher and lecturer until, um, officially, until the kind of 2006, 2007, and I did my PhD, um, which was in and around American art and German aesthetic theory. Um, by chance, I was working... I guess I'd done my PhD in critical theory in American studies um, and had kind of ventured towards looking at and thinking about images, painting, photography, quite broadly. Um, but I was doing part-time teaching in the art history department and then realised that what I knew about art history was very little. Um, but over time through teaching, I, I got a job in the department and I guess off the back of working with colleagues, one of whom was, was inspirational to me really, Nicholas Alfrey, who was a who is a you know a curator as well as an academic, and we spent spent many hours kind of talking about instead of writing a book or writing an article, what it was like to work with artists to to know their work to to kind of study their practice, and then to kind of find ways to exhibit that practice in in ways which energized an audience, energized the artist, but also energized your research. So I became much more, I guess over time, I became much more interested in, in how you can present your, your academic research as a curatorial project, um, which often means working with artists or photographers who you get to know, which is great. Um, but equally, sometimes working with, with the Bauhaus exhibition, for example, I mean, all those people, most of those people in the exhibition are long gone. But the exhibition itself was about what happened after the Bar House, how those ideas travelled the world. So I did get to speak to several artists who are still alive and some of whom I actually knew. Um, and I guess that's one of the reasons that I became very much interested in curating. Part of my research is interviewing people who have made wonderful things. And so it became a great excuse to ask them, after I'd spoken to them, could we do an exhibition? It's a kind of, you know, this... It, on a way, it's a very professional thing, but on another side, it's just kind of, it's just really great to be able to speak to people whose work you, you admire and you have interest in and then get to work with them in a different kind of, more collaborative way. And I suppose that's what 
I guess curating has offered. It's a, it's a new way of doing collaborative research for me. You mentioned Jack, so can we just talk about how you came across um, his work and how did like that particular collaboration start? And it's a very nice story, this. Um, <laughs> first exhibition I ever curated was in 2015, so I'm kind of... I'm a young curator, even though I'm an old man. <laughs> and... Um, it was a project called And Now It's Dark, which in its original iteration was basically about the preponderance of night photographs in American um, photographic history. Some of which are there because of the technical challenge of photographing at night in the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But as we move into the, second, into the latter part of the 20th century, um, it became a problem, a different kind of problem for artists. And I was working with um, Todd Heido, um, uh, Jeff Browse and Will Stacy, all of whom have quite a long career of making photographs at night, um, but in very different ways. So I put that, this show together, and it was at Ginogli Art Gallery on the university campus at Nottingham. And it, it was picked up by David Drake, who runs Photo Gallery in Cardiff mm-hmm. as part of the Diffusion Festival. And, and the year after it'd been on in Nottingham, David put it as the centrepiece to the Diffusion Festival, which was about... Um, I guess querying, was the American dream still a thing that was of worth talking about or was it, had it changed irrevocably? Um, and part of, the, part of one, you know, one of the things that we were invited to do, because there were lots of shows on, as a curator, I was invited to do a, a review of photographers' work and people could bring their work in and Jack came to see me and he came to see Todd and he came to see Jeff and it was clear then as a kind of young... He, he was just either finished being a student or was kind of... Because he, he went to this... Yeah, he'd studied in Newport. Newport, yeah, right? yeah. He's gone off the Newport yeah, yeah. documentary course. So I think he was, it was clear that he had a very strong sense of um, who he wanted to put his work in front of. And, and that's, that's another story. But um, So Jack sat down opposite me and showed me um, his work. And I think he showed me mainly Pink Flamingo, which I'd seen... I think I'd picked up a book in the past so I, there were images which I kind of several images which I knew and I couldn't quite put my finger on why so um, maybe I hadn't seen the book but I'd seen something online I can't really remember but we had a really fantastic conversation because his book the Pink Flamingo book was about the Oregon Trail mm-hmm. and the ways in which um, Jack's work was tracing a, a previous journey and I was really taken by I guess his not just his intelligence but the way in which he could he could see projects from a quite a different point of view. He had a he has a very astute way of coming at things, which might not be the normal way that you would approach a project. He comes at things from a quite oblique angles, and by doing so, he reveals kind of interesting things which people maybe haven't noticed before. So, we met at Diffusion. We had a long conversation there, looking at his portfolio, and then we went out and drinking and. Um, <laughs> Then, you know, there's quite a big gang of us. And I suppose from that moment, we became quite, um, we became friends mm-hmm. after that. And we kept in touch. Uh, and then he kind of mentioned, you know, this project that was kind of bubbling away. And then slowly but surely, he's, he'd been working on the Iceland project for a while. And he would send me prints and, and show me what, where he was up to. I went out to Iceland with him a couple of times and watched him work. And so, yeah, from that point of view, we became quite, um, I think we're, we're, 
when we're together, we're a bit of a, we can become an unofficial double act, I think. So no, one of the reasons that we worked together quite well was that we kind of, we bounce off each other. And I suppose going back to the point I made earlier about collaboration, I've always felt that with Jack, it's not a one-way street of me telling him what to do or vice versa. We're very much kind of discussing ideas and, and what works and what doesn't work. And so from that point of view, it's a really productive kind of relationship. And so, yeah, we've, we talk a lot about other things, other people's work and other kinds of photography, but there's something that there's a bit of a spark when we talk about his and, and how we're going to put things together. Mm-hmm. So you, so you worked with him right through his submission for the bar tour photo book. Award. In a kind of outside the on the periphery. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jack's. It's fair to say that Jack is a very motivated individual, and um, his success lies in the fact that he's able to kind of keep many projects on the go. So he's always been able to both finance his work through things like winning awards and um, and grant capture and and that's. But also, you know, he's very kind of astute with mini click and. And being mm. part of a photo community, and I think, um, and also printing. I mean, he prints as well for people. So he has this kind of, he's made himself a very important figure in in the kind of, I guess, the community of British photography, especially of a certain mm. generation. Um, working with Jack around Sugar Paper Theories um, was for me much more expressly about the exhibition when it when it happened in Iceland. The, the book was very much Jack working with here, press after Bartol. And I suppose mm-hmm. there's a very, there, there was a very, there's a very strong line drawn between those two projects. We would talk about the work, but event, you know, most of that work was on one side of, of the line and the other side of the line was, so the book was here, press and Jack, and I was on the other side with the exhibition. But clearly there were conversations which maybe were affecting how mm-hmm. both of those things worked. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just sort of talking. Well, we're just yeah moving on from photo books and exhibitions. So it's quite common now for photo books um, to be moved from the pages to the wall, um, with things like Abril's on abortion and yeah. uh, Asselin's Monsanto. Yeah. Um, so what um, challenges did you face when trying to translate the book into the space, or had you figured everything out prior to the bar to a photo book award? We'd no. <laughs> so uh, no, the book. In some senses, the book is the is both is is a gift and a problem at the same time. Um, it's a gift because the way in which that that piece of work is is put together is incredibly beautiful. So it's a beautifully constructed object, and it and it and it does exactly what we wanted to do curatorially as well. It does exactly what we wanted it to do as an exhibition, which was to combine all of the different threads and stories and narratives which which have been told and continue to be told about this particular case in Icelandic history. Um, the physical material object of a book, though, gives that project a whole different feel, I think. It's, um, but there's a kind of, there's something different about handling a book and moving through the images and the police files and the, and the diary entries, which is quite different, I suppose, we wanted to keep some of that for the exhibition, but just not, I guess, translate what the book did onto the wall, as in, like, directly copy. So the exhibition differs in many ways. One of the ways in which it differs, I think, is through... There are far... The order of the images in the book is not how the, the images are ordered on, on the walls of the exhibition. Um, I think there are fewer 
journal entries and the way in which the police materials have been um, shown is has been is different. It's kind of it's presented in a very different way. So here at RPS at the moment, those police materials are presented in vitrines as though mm -hmm. they're kind of, and the work is on the wall. So yeah, we were very conscious of not trying to copy the book. Um, because I think there's something, maybe it's less about the materiality of the book and more about some of the ideas that we, we wanted to play with. One of the things that's in the book, and if you people haven't seen the book, they should see it. Um, <laughs> yes, you should. You should. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there are a series of French folds in, in the book, and the French fold is, is deliberately used because it appears like you've got two pages, but really it's one image bent over and it's connected, and you need to push the image down in order to see it but you can never quite see it because you can never because you're always pushing it down and it's obscuring a part of the image and the idea of not never getting the full picture became a really important theme and whether that was I, I'm getting you know I want to say that was a deliberate strategy on the part of the bookmaking that you know the fold has this ability to kind of it makes you touch the image which is also something you're really not supposed to do mm -hmm. But it, it kind of shows you that there's a hand involved in the actual process of making a book, but also in the process of making photography, but also in the process of making up a court case or a prosecution against somebody. There is this, there is this idea that there's a hand involved, and by hand I mean metaphorically human presence. And so suddenly the idea of the hand and making becomes a really important part of what Jack's or any photographer's process is. And... And for me, Jack's very aware of that. Some photographers are less aware of that. Um, and maybe I'd find it difficult to work with them in, from that point of view. But, you know, this idea of the hand, and, and this idea of the hand is something which actually does connect this project to, a pre, the, to the Barhouse project. Because, you know, one of the things that the Barhouse project touched upon and was trying to get people to see was an idea that was taken from Laszlo Maholinaj. And Laszlo Maholinaj was always photogramming his hand or mm -hmm. photographing his hand um, because he believed that you know photography is a technology or any kind of technology could be that could be used for the benefit of all you know all of us across the world but ultimately it had to be controlled by a human hand um, in order to have add that human element but also to keep some kind of control on it but we also needed to kind of keep an eye on who was controlling things as well so for me there was a, there was always been a strong connection between these hands-on um, thing and all of that hands-on thing runs through everything so whether it's Jack's photographs or how the police choose to photograph a scene and how they choose to represent those things or how Jack and I decided to represent the work on the wall all of those things involve a series of decisions um, and decisions which are often hidden from the viewer they're beneath, beneath the surface and lots of decisions that are made are never noted down or they're never kind of you know they're never archived in a way they just happened between some people sitting around a table and we will never know and that kind of degree of mystery that surrounds all of these allegedly factual objects I guess was the driving force for the exhibition and the book and the project as a whole so all those things have always existed and are there it's how do you transfer that from the very personal experience of, of holding a book maybe to wandering around a, a white space, as it were, with ceilings and walls, and, and how do we encourage that same kind of engagement and awareness with some of these big issues? Because, you know, except for people that have studied photography and maybe people that have read a little bit about photography, there's still an abiding sense that when someone looks at a photograph, it, it, 
all of the mechanics before it and everything that happens after the you know the negative is made and then the transferring it from the studio to the wall is this really straightforward process mm -hmm. and it just happens you know photographs just happen and anything which interrupts that or allows somebody to feel that that process has been interrupted to make them feel oh no maybe not maybe this isn't what I think I'm looking at is, is I guess is what interests me from a from an academic and an intellectual point of view but it clearly interests Jack and those interests are what we've tried to make make real in the gallery mm -hmm. space I suppose mm -hmm. yeah I want to I want to pick up on this notion of like mystery because you, you mentioned the vitrines with the that had the sort of the police documents and and artifacts in I noticed that they, they don't have, or currently, they don't have any text. Mm. So it's left completely unknown as to what they are, whether they're, wh yeah, whether they're actually from the time, whether yeah. they were created by yeah. a forger. Like, you just yeah, don't yeah. know. So, yeah. I mean, w that was an intentional process to... Yeah. I wonder whether you could just talk about well, that. Well, yeah, I, I, what can you say? Um, there are lots of, there are lots of reasons why exhibitions beyond this one, but just historically, have either been really tied to the notion of, of the caption mm -hmm. and, you know, wall panels and endless... And maybe that comes from the historical museum. You know, when you're working on the British Museum, you just can't walk into a room that's just got stuff in it because you've... So there's always been this sense that the viewer, the, the, the guest of the museum or the gallery needs in some senses to be introduced and guided um, around these things. Um, using facts, you know, dates, this this object is from this place, it was made under the reign of this particular, or, or those kinds of issues. And I guess there's been a there's been a bit of a backlash of late about that, just in terms of those museums, sort of like this idea of decolonizing the museum and, mm -hmm. and challenging that. From a more sort of aesthetic and um, maybe shallow perspective, I think Bochak and I just find labels really distracting from, from a very, you know, just a very, they're just ugly most of the time. So we really wanted to only use them where necessary. And I think that does fit in with a, with a different curatorial practice, which has existed again since maybe the 50s or the 60s, um, which, where people have gone from like abandoning tightly in their works and everything's untitled, mm -hmm. or actually this sense that, you know, we don't want to hold your hand and guide you around anymore. That, you know, we're not saying that art speaks for itself, but, you know, let, let's make people do a bit of legwork. Let's, let's make people think. Let's force them to think. And there's a kind of really tragic, who told me this recently, there was a really tragic kind of, one of those studies that people have done when they've looked at people walk into a gallery, mm -hmm. how long they actually stand in front of certain kinds oh, it's of... it's like a few seconds or yeah, something. Yeah, a photograph it, yeah. gets like three and a half seconds or something, yeah. and, then they're, and they're away. And that, I think that, you know, relates to my point about people just think photography, photo photographs just happen and then they just mm -hmm. appear. Because they do, they do on your phone and your family photographs, you know, you photograph them and if you get them printed, then they've just appeared you've not been involved in any of the process other than making the photograph. But um, you forget actually like, right now's the time to take the photograph. You forget that you've made a bunch of decisions about that beforehand. So yeah, without wishing to, I mean, I did work with an artist many years ago, whose name I won't mention here, who just refused point blank to have any text, any text. And, and his work, and it's Leo, Leo uh, Asamota, who's lovely. He does this amazing work about Benin and Victorians and refuses to have any panels, anything. Um, and his work is so complicated, so complicated. But he just takes, he demands that, you know, so we're less, sugar paper theories is less demanding. Mm -hmm. There are some, 
<clears throat> examples to help you out, like names of works. But yeah, the game is not necessarily to kind of confuse, but to to make you go, well, why? Why there no? Mm-hmm. What am I to make of these gaps in the knowledge? And and hopefully, when you've said to yourself. 18 times but there are gaps here you start to realise that this is an exhibition about those gaps yeah exactly and and how you fill those gaps in mm-hmm. I mean presumably every curator has like their own sort of unique way of working um, I imagine so I we just wonder what maybe the first steps for you when you got into this space mm. what they were um, we spoke earlier about uh, sort of preparatory works like physical maquettes yeah. and things I mean, yeah, I just wonder what the process was for literally at the RPS. What was what, what was did your we first do? Step? What did I do? Um, well, it's quite str- well, it's not strange, but it's kind of mundane. I mean, you know, we argued about what colour to paint the walls. I think was one of the, <laughs> the first things we. Oh, we were given the choice of painting the walls, and we were like, oh my god, we can paint the walls. Um, yeah, so yeah, choosing choosing that, and then. Um, it's fair to say that because we'd done it before, this was a very different experience than, than, than when we first did the show. Um, we've got more works in this particular version, um, which adds a set of problems. So I guess, um, <clears throat> how would I... I mean, originally when we first did this, I was just using, I mean, like making PDFs, and just putting images on PDFs, drawing walls, um, sticking things on, then you know, printing stuff off to scale, sticking them on walls, making mock-ups of the space, um, doing that kind of stuff, sharing those ideas with Jack, you know, online. So, because I was in Nottingham and he was, he was in Brighton and then Bristol, Cardiff. Um, and then knocking together some, just using that technological means of, of, of just pulling things around, you mm-hmm. know, taking something getting something which was kind of material like bits of things stuck to paper then turning that into a little pdf document and then sharing those documents and us both going yeah that's that seems fine uh and then working back well working forwards standing in the gallery looking at those pieces of paper and i think we said earlier looking at those pieces of paper and going yeah that looks great oh my god no that looks awful (laughs) no no we can't possibly do that and and um there are other challenges um, to, to that so you we so there are a series of images um, which are grouped throughout the entire exhibition and they're grouped quite deliberately <clears throat> because they're suggestive of uh, for us they were suggestive of of different entry points into the problem or different ways of arresting the viewer's attention and, and getting them to stop and think why am I looking at this and, and how does this relate to the thing that's behind me on the wall um, and I guess out of those conversations that Jack and I had had, he had his little views about where things should go. I had mine. I'm not going to say that we just kind of agreed and patted each other on the back every single time, but we both had to work around each other to try and get what we felt was our... So there's a lot of compromise involved, but how did we make the exhibition work? It was through talking to each other from mm-hmm. that point of view. So. Yeah, I can see why you want to put those two together, but maybe not. What about this? Oh, yeah, you're right. So there was. So, in answer to the the the, the short answer to the question is, you mess around outside of the gallery with bits of objects and you make a make a a, a document, as it were, and then you stand in the space and then you almost like have to start again. Yeah. Okay. Um, and if. You you can start again because you know even if at the end of the day you've got fifteen minutes to go you can kind of go just do this, and you can pull out the piece of paper with the thing on and then you've got something to fall back on. But 
yeah, there's lots of rethinking and synthesizing of ideas that, that can only happen in the space. And to be frank, you know, not blowing anybody's mind here or giving away any trade secrets, you know, when a gallery, whichever gallery or museum it is, sends you the plans of a space, the detail within those plans differs greatly, but, you know, very rarely will you, will it be that accurate that when you arrive, you know, you will find, as we found here, there's a thermostat in the middle of a, or in a, in a particular... In a prime spot. <laughs> yeah, two-thirds <laughs> of the way across the wall, and suddenly that row of work, which you both agreed would look astounding together, now can't happen because you've got a... So, you know, maybe, you know, some of the curatorial process is actually just dealing with the space as a thing, as an entity, which is, you know, you can change some things. You can add partitions and you can, you know, you can paint the walls whatever colour you like. And, and as we've done, you can, you know, put vinyl up as well to cover the wall instead of painting. You can do all of those things, but there are some things which are just, you just can't change and you will have to, to work around them. And sometimes they end up, I mean, to be fair... You can turn those in those that annoyance into actually it kind of makes you go well, actually we need to do something differently now and it forces you to think and yeah with some of the there's a couple of happy accidents I think that we were forced to go actually that that worked in Iceland but it doesn't really work now because we've got this other so you're constantly having to kind of adjust mm-hmm. um, which makes it quite strange when everything's on the wall and you think right that's it because it feels like it shouldn't just be it but it but it is. <laughs> um, I want to go back to the, the comment you made about um, adding things to the space yeah. uh, when, you, when you see fit. So there are a couple of partitions mm. in the show. Mm. Um, and I yeah, just wonder whether we could talk about them, whether, they, it, whether it's dividing the space into almost like a three-act mm. um, narrative. Mm. or um, and, and both partitions, for those who haven't seen the show, they have uh, like wall vinyls on mm. them, of exterior... Uh, either of a, a building or some mm. part of a landscape. Mm. Um, yeah, and I just wonder whether you could explain what your motivations were for that. Yeah. Um, in one way, we wanted... One of the problems of, of... Not one of the problems. One of the exciting things about the project as a whole are these narratives which exist from, you know, Jack's photographs, the the court case, the the events as reported... Um, the diary entries, the police kind of reports, and also the, the, the kind of ideas of the conspiracy theorists, because one of the key elements in this, of course, is this has been going on now for, you know, since the mid-70s, mm-hmm. and it's a kind of, it's a cultural watershed for lots of people in that country. As happens everywhere, people have been pondering, well, what is this story? And so... How do we translate the book, which has, which, you know, you can have pages that differ and you can move from different kinds of papers. And how can you do that in a space? And you do it quite obviously by, you build walls is one mm-hmm. way of doing it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we wanted to do was, we, we were always struck by, I guess, the beauty of some of the police images, um, which are accidentally aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not taken in any way, shape or form, but clearly the people making those photographs are balancing their view. And there are several photographs which of, of streets um, in Keflavik, I think it is, near the, near the, near the sea, um, 
and you know if they were colour you'd, you'd think they were Stephen Shaw photographs <laughs> <laughs> and we were sort of like hey, isn't that peculiar how this there's an aesthetic which seemingly runs through these so on the one hand there was something about well how can we use these aesthetically um and when they were printed in the book they're printed on that kind of like silvery paper mm. which gives them a quality which um, which they didn't have originally um and we thought about well how could we use those and the way to do it i think we we kind of found our favorite images and again you know without giving too much away I think we genuinely just picked them, A, with a mind to this is an important site or this is a building which occurs several times in the narrative. Either Jack's photographed it or it appears in another police photograph. <clears throat> so there are those issues around them. But also some of them are just kind of, when they're blown up, they become these abstract mm -hmm. things, which completely, again, you know, when you change the perspective or scale of something, when you either step back or step in, it changes your perception of these things completely. Mm. And again, it was about how do we change the space to kind of reiterate or reaffirm our notion that moving in and out changes how you see the story. So, um, and if you were involved, if you're in it, as you know, Etler and the other people were very much in that, <clears throat> what's it like to be in that space with, with these you know, these figures looming and this material, this evidence, which is so huge and seemingly weighted against you. I mean, what are you supposed to do? So I guess the wall panels and the divisions, I'll go back to the divisions, but the wall panels and the kind of the blowing up of those images was, was particularly about scale, I think, mm -hmm. for me. Um, and about, A, how beautiful they look, but also they had a second or maybe a primary role more than the beauty. They had a, they had a role which was to kind of, again, think, make you go, well, what is that? for mm -hmm. what, what what in fact what is that because the grainy quality that you know from being, being blown up there are moments when you kind of go oh i've seen this i've mm -hmm. seen this mm -hmm. um where where did i see this and again it's like it kind of sends the viewer back round and trying to stop this four seconds in front of a picture thing by creating these i guess it's like setting up a prism isn't it in the middle with light bouncing through it and and sending it around and you kind of go, oh my god and you have to chase it around so mm -hmm. Even though you might start at the beginning, that isn't the beginning, you know, and I suppose that was another thing. There, there is no beginning, middle and end. And so your question about, is it three chapters? Mm -hmm. you, you can conceive of it like that. And I think it does kind of offer. But, but, but by me saying you can do that, it means that you, you don't have to do that either. And, and again, that sort of like draws on this idea that there is no arc of a beginning, a middle and an end here. There is 1974 and there is 2019, but all of the how we've got from there to here with all of these different materials is not a kind of easy traversable like landscape without being too metaphorical about it. So, how have we kind of built that? How have we built the time between, and how do we make sense of that time? Mm -hmm. So the exhibition is that. Yeah, so you kind of go, oh, no, I've seen this. Oh no, it's behind. And and I think we both kind of like the idea that you. You're not getting people to spin round on their heels and stuff. It's not quite so dramatic. But I think we wanted to get... Because Jack's book is really good at, at sewing down and, and there's a nagging kind of... Mm, what's, and I suppose we wanted to kind of get that to slow people down a little bit mm -hmm. for them to, think, to, to consider the complexities of everything. 
-hmm. in the exhibition from from making images through to making the case through to proving innocence all of those things take time and they and they require pause for thought mm -hmm. yeah there is a there is a real cyclical sort of element to the to the way you've laid everything out in the space um and for, for those who haven't seen it, um, you if you travel around in a sort of clockwise fashion, one of the last photographs you see is a colour photograph of someone's desk. And I think it's, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's in that photograph they have the image that takes the cover of the book. Yeah. So it kind of, so you kind of finish almost like starting to investigate it yeah. again. So you're like led to go back round. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think that's no, a, well, I think a that's really strong element. One of the desks, that's the desk of one of the key conspiracy theorists mm. who's kind of, and you're right, I mean, suddenly, you know, the, the name of the exhibition relates to the colour of those books and there's a sort of, um, you know, it's in many volumes and, you know, you can almost like pick anyone up and start and then, you know, yeah, so there's a kind of, I think, Talking about like the beginning. I mean, I say there is no beginning. There is a. I was quite keen in the beginning. We have um, two images at the beginning. Um, one of which is a, which is a hatch. Yeah, th yeah. These these are really fantastic. By the way, I wanted to talk about this. So yeah, cool. <laughs> no, 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 no. I wanted you to talk about this. I think you know one of the things that kind of dawned on me about that that the, the, the pair that open the show is that they are. They're from different perspective, different angles. So the angles, one points one way, one points the other. So in a way you can flip them over and they kind of sit on top of one another but for for me the important thing and this is such an idea that i've stolen from david lynch um <laughs> and i also stole the, the the name of and now it's dark from david lynch as well um from blue velvet um i have there's a theme going actually i'm just thinking now now i'm singing i'm thinking my god i did the same thing i've watched too much lynch as um but the, the idea of the hatch was simply that you know this this was allegedly the scene where one of the bodies was kept um, but actually, for me, it was, a, it was a way in which you're going down... I mean, it's a bit like Alice in Wonderland. It's a bit... We're going down the rabbit hole here. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't, you don't know where it is. You don't know where we're going to go. And I suppose there's that... We were descending into this thing. Um, and then there's a, there's a, as you kind of next set of images, there's a pen. Mm -hmm. And so there are these instruments that, you know, whether it's architectural or kind of the, the material, the, the objects of, of investigation whether it's the camera or the pen or the document, suddenly become, yeah, I was kind of, yeah, I, was, I love those two opening images. Yeah, it's, it's kinda, really, really powerful. I wanted to insist on those. But, uh, <laughs> but no, because it really works. And I think it sets up what we, that we want people to do, which is um, most people, you know, in real life, if you see a hole in the ground, you, you know, you're not going to go down it, you know, really, unless you're insane <laughs> or you've dropped something in it. Yeah, um, yeah. But for the most part, you know, we avoid those things, but the, it's a kind of invitation. Mm -hmm. um, and if you accept our invitation, then I think we've tried to give people, you know, that, well, try to scare them into some kind of awareness or present a series of stories to them which, which, which increases in awareness and makes them feel like, actually, I'm glad that I took the chance. Because mm -hmm. um, you can, like most exhibitions, you can just walk around and go, oh, yeah, that's a very nice photograph of a mountain. Or he looks, he's got a friendly face. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, that's not what this is about at all and it has a very deep and it tells a very deep and problematic story i think mm -hmm. um i want to go on to um your specialism in like um american art history yeah um 
I, I wonder whether you found any unexpected relationships between Jack's work mm-hmm. and that specialism. You mentioned earlier that the um, the archival photographs of the police had some sort of Stephen Shaw American yeah. elements in there. Yeah, yeah. I just wondered, yeah, whether there was like a, yeah, whether it's like a cross pollination or um, or just resonances of these sort of American masters. Yeah, maybe I just look into. I'd been looking at his work for so long that everything just looked like a Stephen Shaw. Yeah, <laughs> which sometimes happens, doesn't it? You know, you kind of you're in a, a particular way of seeing the world because you're looking at a particular kind of work. Um, but Jack agreed, so that was fine. So yeah. I, I felt justified in that. Um, I must admit that working with Jack was, was very easy because of going back to the, the Flamingo project and the Oregon Trail. I think Jack himself has a very strong interest in that. And it's clear to me that some of his influences other people I've, I'm interested in as well. Mm-hmm. And so that whole sort of new topographic school of photography from the 70s and this, I guess, very a more self-conscious way of looking at the world using the camera, um, whether you're a, a, a Stephen Shaw who's interested as much in how colour works as, as, as formally how you set up a, an interesting large format photograph. Um, but the ways in which, and I suppose this has become the thing that I, th- I find most important photographically um, and the thing that does hark back to some of my, my art historical sort of work with American artists and, and especially photographers is this idea that there's no such thing as a singular photograph. Mm-hmm. You know, sugar paper theories is a project. Um, these are projects, so th- they consist of lots of photographs. And in, in a sense... One of the things, going back to Stephen Shaw and whether it's Stephen Shaw's and Common Places or someone like Lewis Baltz and, and, you know, Candlestick Park or, you know, the industrial parks, which are filled with photographs. No one photograph is more important than the next one. Mm-hmm. But the project itself is about this thing, whether it's about land use and, you know, the emergence of these in- anonymous zones that exist on the outskirts of Californian cities, or it's about the disappearance of two men in Iceland in the 1970s the photographic project is the thing which I think is the connection here mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Mo- a lot of people still will kind of go in and say, I just don't like that photograph. That's a really nice photograph. And yeah, that works. And I think most photographers will concede that um, you don't aim to make one image more successful than another, but those things kind of happen and people will, will buy into. So will be intrigued by certain kinds of images more than others. But, but generally this sense that the the photo book in particular and and the way in which narrative is created using images is the is is the connection to my well my interest in american art history in particular mm-hmm. um where the growth of or the interest in and the capacity of photography to be seen as an art form which has often been, you know, a lot of people now just think, you know, just discount that argument. And that's, I think that's true. You know, we should just forget. Is photography now? Of course it is. Yeah. Just forget about that argument. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of pointless. But one of the things that photography doesn't do um, necessarily is, is create that one image. I can think of, I can think of like Jeff Wall, perhaps. Yeah. yeah is or fast. like a demand. Or yeah. Something. And they yeah. want to kind of make this, this one thing. But mm. for lots of people working in the, now and and even in the past it's not necessarily been about that and although you know names change modernism postmodernism the picture generate all those things might usefully frame a particular way of thinking about work 
Um, it was Stephen Shaw, actually. I was reading an interview with him this week um, where he kind of says, you know, most photographers... It was no, when postmodernism happened, it was no news to most photographers mm-hmm. that um, life is fiction. You know, that, <laughs> that, you know, this, the, there is the, there's no... Everything is fiction, and the idea that photographers feel like they've been telling you the truth is a myth. And so this idea that photography changes after conceptual art as well photography was always conceptual mm-hmm. even before the term conceptual art happened so you know in a way photography has been ahead of those two curves for its entire um especially in the 20th century to now um that awareness has, has created a, like some fabulous projects mm-hmm. um so yeah that for me that's the that's the i mean it's a very long way round of saying i love photographers that can make amazing images and i love the, the passion and the kind of skill that it takes to make them, but it's how a photographer then weaves those things together to to tell or create something much bigger mm. than than the individual. Yeah, talk about image. something much larger. Yeah, 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 and whether that's a kind of whether it's about abortion or whether it's about murder mm-hmm. or whether it's just about you know something which may be considered less, far less, of less interest and concern to people more generally. Um, whether it's just about how colour is used, you know, anything mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I'm kind of, I just, you know, I think I felt sort of. When I discovered Ed Ruscha's photo books... Um, Which one? The, the, is it Sunset Strip? Well, the everything on Sunset Strip is a kind of classic, isn't it? Because, yeah. I mean, it does that thing where you take the... You know, he'd done 26 gasoline stations and the United mm-hmm. Swimming Pools and the 34 parking lots and stuff, but then he has this concertina. And I was talking about this last week, actually. I mean, I've never actually seen it, seen it in real life. No. no uh, I've seen a picture of it. <laughs> no, it's... I mean, it's just... It's just... It's just a very clever thing to do. And mm-hmm. I suppose maybe people might not think it's that clever now, but at the time. So mm-hmm. the idea of like making, a, making a, an entire you know, sunset strip is quite long, but making that look like a one photograph mm-hmm. uh, and having an accordion so you could pull it out, and I think it's 30-odd feet long, um, so when it's, when it's stretched out. But if you look at Rouchet's notes about how he wants it to be displayed, it's never flat. He always wants it hanging on the wall with the concertina evidence. So you can't see this street in a continuum. You just have this kind of, almost like a, I guess like a Toblerone on its side. Yeah, and right, yeah. to the, so you get this. And so it just compresses time. And it, you know that it's a trip, but you can, and you can jump in and out and, and none, of the, none of the photographs join up properly. And mm-hmm. so, you know, but photographers have been doing that for years and years before that. And I suppose, yeah, I guess... I'm enthusiastic about that material. That's the thing that really intrigues me. Mm-hmm. So we've spoken about the like the formal elements of like how you're interested in uh, photography. I wonder whether we could talk about. Um, you have quite a strong theoretical uh, mm. like foundation, um, looking into Benjamin and Lacan and uh, uh, and others. And I just wonder, yeah, whether you could speak about how that has influenced the way you think about photography. Mm. Also, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I guess the short answer is yes. I suppose it's... Um, I did a, I did an M- a master's degree in critical theory. Um, and then, as I said, my PhD was, was mainly... It was half and half. It was about an American painter-photographer called Charles Sheila. Um, but it was, it was also about um, Theodore Adorno, who was Walter Benjamin's kind of sidekick for a while uh, at the Frankfurt School. Um, and yeah, I think reading the work of the Frankfurt School and then sort of like subsequent French theory, um, 50s and 60s into the 70s, was kind of foundational for a kind of a way of 
both thinking but writing as well. And I guess over time you, I've moved away so much from, from framing everything through critical theory. And so I guess the theories have become much more embedded in, mm-hmm. in how I see and what I think um, about work and how I engage with it and what I think, um, how best to engage with it in a way. So I'm not a kind of... If you'd have asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, I'm an Adornian, you know. Yeah. I love my Adorno. Um, <laughs> and when my first child was born, the students actually made me, well, didn't make me, made uh, my son a baby grow, which actually said, I love Adorno on it. So <laughs> there was a kind of... So I'm also... Everything was framed through, well, what Adorno would say about this. Mm-hmm. And I think at some point, I guess it's like most things, you know, you end up putting your, your obvious... Um, influences aside because you don't need to keep saying it because it's it's how you it's within you yeah and I think you you know you kind of you so there's clear and that doesn't mean that it goes unchecked and I don't think to myself oh my god you you know that seems a bit antiquated or that feels like that doesn't really work anymore and so yeah I kind of keep abreast of what's kind of happening with with that sort of stuff and you know, names come in and out of fashion, don't they? And, mm-hmm. you know, Freud's not and Freud is. Mm-hmm. And, but it doesn't stop me being, and nonetheless, you know, fascinated by somebody like Freud. And I suppose one of the reasons that I'm really interested in Freud, fraud, is, <laughs> um, is because, you know, there is, it, it, his work is so bizarre in many ways. It, it just, just read like fiction. And perhaps it possibly is fiction. And, you know, Freud had his his own addictions to various things mm-hmm. which may have influenced his work or not. But the thing that I love about Freud outside of that whole thing is that he kept going back and changing things. Mm. So, and if you think about that in terms of an intellectual history, and when people write or make work, you know, it tends to be that work is made and then it's gone and it's not yours anymore. But this idea of... Of going reevaluating yourself. Yeah, yeah, going back, you know, two, three years after the fact and, and adding something and, and, and never trying to hide the fact that it was just, he'd had this entire, you know, what's happened since then, I had this case, and mm. I've rethought how this... And I think that's an incredibly important thing that I've... So, and it, it fits with the sugar paper theories because we did it and we, 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 we had one version of it. And it was in a very different country, in very different circumstances, because it was in the country of where this thing happened. And so there were a whole set of circumstances around that, which Jack and I were quite, I guess, nervous about in some ways. Um, Were we going to offend people? Was it going to be, uh, you know, the museum? They were taking a chance by putting it, were they, you know? So we we didn't fully understand the politics, because obviously we're not Icelandic. Um, But yeah, then then kind of resituating it here is exactly that revisiting of it. And I think, you know, Jack and I both had a a good conversation where, you know, because since this project, he's done another really successful project, Parliament Mm -hmm. of Owls. um, And he's thinking at the time about other projects which we were kind of discussing. So in a way, all of this work comes back and we both sit and look at it again and think... What do we do now? Do what? Do do we just do the same? Do we, and you don't. You can't do the same. And suddenly, the the two thousand and nineteen us is different to the two thousand and sixteen seventeen us that did that thing. And it, you have to kind of change stuff. And I I really like that. I kind of enjoyed the the process of of being yeah being a little Freud and, and <laughs> yeah yeah and going back and, and editing what we'd done before and thinking well actually you know could we do this differently if we do that how will it change that. Um, so, yeah, the idea that not everything is sacrosanct, that you can go back and change and play with. I mean, you have to be quite... I think you have to be honest about what you're doing. But, yeah, 
so that, I guess the Freud thing was the is the most obvious correlation here in terms of you know revisiting something, rethinking it, and then representing it, and then you know maybe we'll get the chance to to do it again in the future. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. That's all our, the questions that we have. So um, I just want to say a huge thank you. Um, you've been a real pleasure to talk to. Um, yeah, loved uh, it. Thank yeah. you. No, no, thanks for inviting me. It's it's kind of it, yeah. It's it's um it's a pleasure because. I suppose people work on these things and people come to see them and, you know, I rarely get to kind of say my piece about them, which is oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> no one cares about the curator in photography. We do. <laughs> thank God for you too. Thanks. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for listening to episode four of the Sugar Paper Theories podcast. This episode was recorded and produced by Jake Gardner. Music by Paige Brimble. This is a Boom Mic production in association with the Royal Photographic Society. Tune in for the next episode where we sit down with Etla Bolodotir, convicted of perjury after she implicated her half-brother and others in the disappearance. A conviction she is still fighting today. <laughs>